This Week in Startups is brought to you by Gusto. Running a startup is hard work, but thankfully Gusto makes payroll easy. They also offer flexible benefits, onboarding, and so much more. Twist listeners get three months free at gusto.com slash twist. Masterworks, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 25,000 person waitlist by going to masterworks.io and using promo code twist. And Dell for entrepreneurs. Now is the perfect time to upgrade that home office or refresh your data center. Twist listeners get up to 40% off select products with an exclusive Black Friday sneak peek at launch.co slash Dell. While you're there, sign up for a free IT consultation. That's launch.co slash Dell. Hey, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups. One of the questions I get a lot is what podcast you listen to. And, uh, you know, I have some peculiar ones. I have some ones that you probably listen to already. On the weird side, uh, I listen to Brett Easton Ellis, uh, who is an author who wrote Less Than Zero and American Psycho. And he's got an amazing podcast that's on Patreon. It's paid. I listen to Red Scare, which is like part of this dirtbag left all these crazy lefties and then on the right sometimes i'll listen to ben shapiro i like to get the range of ideas that are different than me uh still processing on the new york times lots of different ones but then a really interesting thing that's happened in my world is i discovered a podcast that i became obsessed with because listen there's only like one group of people honestly that i answer to anymore and i barely answer to them but i do have to go hat in hand and do a little dance and tap dance like literally you would think I probably don't have to tap dance to anybody. I got the FU money. I don't care what anybody else thinks. There's like one group where I put on a suit and I go on tour and I go to them. And who are those people? LPs, limited partners. I have to, every three or four years, when I raise a fund to angel invest and to do early stage investing, I got to put a suit on. I got to go to the East Coast. I got to get on that Amtrak, up and down the corridor, go into these rooms with 12 MBAs who all went to Ivy League schools and I went to school at night at Fordham. And I literally have to tap dance around the room and tell them what I'm planning to do for the next decade, only to have them say, gosh, I would love to get to know you a little bit more. Maybe we'll do the next fund. It's literally my life. <laughs> it's literally my life. But part of that is that there is somebody who interviews these people. So I get to at least know what I'm dealing with on the other side of the table when, yes, as crazy as it seems, the greatest angel investor of the last 10 years, except maybe for Chris Saka. <laughs> but... Uh, I have to deal with constantly being, uh, constantly being told no. Uh, and Ted Sidis, uh, did I pronounce it correct? Sidis. 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 I will get it by the end of the pod. Uh, Ted Sidis uh, runs a podcast called Capital Allocators, and it's just awesome. It's freaking awesome because you wonder who runs like the Harvard endowment, the Yale endowment, the Duke endowment. Well, who does this derivative trading? Who are these people in finance? Well, he does what I do with founders and venture capitalists on this podcast, except he does it with the capital allocators who give people like Bill Gurley or Chamath or myself money to invest in startups. So welcome uh, to the podcast, Ted Sides. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. How, who are you? <laughs> and how did you come up with this idea for capital allocators? How did, how did you get to all of this? Give us a background on who you are. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we can go through the long version or the short version. The, the short version is I've spent 20 years on that side of the table. Um, so very beginning, first job out of college, I worked for the Yale Endowment for David Swenson for five years. And then you know went to business school, thought I wanted to do direct investing. Try, you could say tried and failed or tried for a little bit and went back to it and ran a hedge fund of funds for 14 years. Um, so, you know, those are my friends and peers, and that's the world I know really well. So, that reminds me a little bit of the DNA I have here in doing my podcast, which is those people respect you as a peer. So, you're able as a podcaster to get them to talk, correct? Sure. Yeah. And to book them as guests, because these don't seem like people who have a lot of upside in coming on a podcast. Like, they seem like they work for these big endowments. It's a pretty great job. They don't want to lose it. So they are typically podcast and media shy, correct? I think that's right. I mean, you know, the the first 50 guests or so, I, my show has been going about three and a half years. And the first 50 guests, I think something like 48 of them were friends that I asked for a favor. Mm. Uh, and as people started listening, you'd think that for the most part, these people don't answer to anyone. They don't care. But it's not the case, right? Every, almost everybody answers to somebody else. And so a lot of them um, do it somewhat as a favor, somewhat because it's become a comfortable platform to tell their story. And if they have an agenda, and they usually don't, but if they have an agenda, it may be um, just sort of a, a protection on their career. You know, maybe they get a little bit more exposure. More likely they do it because they want to help um, make their process more efficient. So mm. if someone describes what they're looking for and, and like, Jason, I'm sorry, like they're never going to invest in angel round seed venture and you hear it, you won't bother them. Um, right. So I think that's a small part of it to just try to tell their Absolutely. story once yeah. and let, let more people hear it. See, I think that's interesting. And every it's like Bob Dylan says, you got to serve somebody. <laughs> you can be an ambassador to England or France, but you're going to serve somebody at some point. So a capital allocator, explain what that job is in the world. And do you have any, I was thinking about this today when I was in the shower. I was like, where did this concept of capital allocators even originate from? I, I, we know about carry and that when you know ships used to go to the uh what was then called the orient uh or to india to get spice or whatever somebody would say hey listen if you get the package back here i'll give you 20 percent of whatever makes it back to shore you get carry you get a portion of what comes back and that aligned interest so we know that piece where did the concept of a capital allocator even come from yeah i think it's relatively new um if i go back i started my career in 1992 and just to give you a perspective at the time there were no more than a half a dozen of these offices in the country. And I think wow. I was the only junior analyst looking at funds in the entire country. Like Yale used to hire one undergrad a year. Um, and so Harvard had an office, but they were mostly direct investing. And Stanford had an office, but there were four or five you know, senior people. There are very, very few of them. Um, the reason I think it's come to pass has kind of goes hand in hand with the notion of modern portfolio theory. In that if you have a large pool of capital and you're trying to preserve and grow it for a long period of time, um, and there's spending needs along the way, people have adopted the notion that you want to be diversified. And so the question is, if you are four or five people, you know, maybe it was 10 or 12 back then and a little more today, but you're four or five people sitting in New Haven, Connecticut, 
and you want to diversify around the world, you, you have two options, right? One is you could say, okay, let's go figure out how to compete with Jason and all the other seed stage venture capitalists, and we'll compete with Sequoia. And then let's go to like, Asia, and we'll, we'll pick Chinese stocks. And oh, by the way, we probably want to be in large cap and small cap stocks in the US and equity and credit. Oh, and we need expertise in the bond markets. At some point in time, your head starts spinning and say, well, we can do one of two things. We can either try to compete with an increasingly specialized world, or we can just go try to identify them. Let's develop our skill set mm-hmm. to try to identify the best and partner with them. And Got so it. that that became a model that went hand in hand with this kind of strategy and really got popularized when David Swenson wrote his kind of seminal book called Portfolio, Pioneering Portfolio Management in 2000. And then you started to see proliferation of more of these offices and, and more LPs in these strategies. And so the, the clear path to becoming a capital allocator at one of these endowments was to have been an alumni of that place for some reason. Is that correct? I mean, I suppose, right? There, one of the things that's interesting about my show is when I interview a bunch of these CIOs, there is no clear path because hmm. the fact is the industry didn't exist 20 years ago. So how could you have been trained in it? Ah, uh, yes, that makes total sense. It's like asking for somebody to be like a an AR developer. It's like, or, you know, an AI developer. Well, AI has been existed for now for 30 years. But yes, yeah. people were like, I need a iPhone app developer for with five years experience when the app store had just came out, people would put up exactly ads for that kind of stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So uh, when we get back from this quick break, what I want to understand is what did you learn at Yale? Because that seems to be the nexus of excellence and process. And uh, let's just say a person uh, I know who's very close to me might have almost gone through the microscope of Yale, but they said, are you sure you want to do this because it's going to be arduous and painful? And I actually said, let's wait till the next fund. Or that person I know <laughs> said, let's wait till the next fund and then go through this. What somebody referred to me as like the ultimate invasive exam from Yale when we get back uh, with Ted CDs uh, from Capital Allocators. Look, 2020 has proven to be the year of many things, but If you own a startup, this could also be the year you switch to better payroll. Gusto wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them. Their online payroll is so easy to use. I use it all the time. All of my uh, founders use it. Gusto can automatically calculate paychecks and file your payroll taxes for you. And three out of four customers say they run payroll in 10 minutes or less. That's what you want to do, which means you'll have more time to run your business, to focus on your customers and build them a delightful product, which, by the way, Gusto is doing so well because they build such a delightful product that does time tracking, health insurance, 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, and of course, access to their HR experts. And if you're moving from another provider, they can transfer all your data for you. It's no surprises. It is the greatest. Here's the best part. Because you're a listener to This Week in Startups, you'll get Three months totally free. All you have to do is go to gusto.com slash twist, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist. Again, that's gusto.com slash twist. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Ted Sides is here from Capital Allocators. I'm, I'm getting through my dyslexia and uh, figuring out how to pronounce really easy names. Uh, so you worked for David Swenson, uh, who is a legend uh, in, I think, specifically running an endowment, but 
is it correct that his speciality was venture specifically and being able to master getting into all these venture funds? No, I mean that was just oh. one one piece of it. Okay. Um, it's certainly something that's because of the success of venture capital that's driven a lot of the returns. Mm. Um, no, David. David's a fascinating guy. I mean, he is well-known and world-renowned for all of the right reasons. Um, he's innovative. He really thinks from first principles. And then I had the benefit, as did you know, many of my colleagues at the time, of learning from a guy who's just a gifted teacher as well. Um, so there's really two pieces of that. One is the whole framework that he thinks about investing. And the second is what you were talking about, which is the proctology exam that comes at the end of that. Um, you know, that framework is something that is broadly applicable across all of investing, and many people just don't do it. And I would describe it as the following. You start with having a set of beliefs. What do you believe about the world? How, the, how does the world work? Um, and you know, for him, it's based on academic research. Um, and then you actually implement on those beliefs and stay disciplined to them. Um, so that can apply anywhere. Now, for him, managing an endowment, which has effectively a perpetual time horizon, he was very equity-oriented. He believed in diversification. Um, and then he had a whole bunch of things that he believed about the types of investment management firms he wanted to partner with. Mm. Um, and he's, he's very disciplined, and so he didn't veer from it. He's also just a uniquely brilliant guy, so he could sit down with you and not ask you about your return stream and you know what deal worked, but he could really understand uh, and see through what you were doing to the underlying assets and just kind of ask the right questions. And so to be able to sit in that kind of cauldron of learning for five years, which I did, and you know a lot of my old colleagues now are managing other endowments, foundations, family offices around the country. Um, it yeah, was that's just my understanding place. is that yeah. a lot of his alumni now run the other endowments in the world because they learn something from him in terms of first principle thinking or process, I guess. Like process is important, yeah. isn't it, in capital allocation? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, look, he had a huge first mover advantage. Um, I was so early on that I didn't even think that there was a path to do what all these people have done. So most of the people who are these... Uh, protégés of his uh, that are CIOs followed me uh, in my tenure mm. there. Not all, but but many of them. Um, yeah, that process is you know, starts with you know what I described, and then in the implementation of it, the asset class and sort of asset allocation component of it is now sort of well understood. Um, I always said that people mis misinterpreted uh, what David wrote as an um, an an homage to private markets and hedge funds. Mm. Um, he believed that you wanted to be invested in equities and diversified. And the problem was if you start with owning US stocks and US bonds, and you want to diversify and have more of an equity orientation, anything else you own is going to be less liquid. Right. Because so, these are the most liquid assets in the world. Sure. And is being illiquid a feature or a bug in the mind of a David Swenson in the, in the, in the mind of these uh, capital allocators from the big, you know, tens of billions or multiple billions of, of assets. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's that simple. I mean, it is a feature in the sense that if you accept illiquidity and you can find ways to get paid for that, that's a good thing to do when you have extremely long duration capital behind you. Um, it's a bug in the sense that, you know, ideally, you'd like to have liquidity if you could. 
or at least have liquidity that's matching the underlying assets. And sometimes that, that isn't always the case. And how has that game of, you know, from when you joined it and when you, when you were at Yale's endowment and now we're, I guess we're here 20 years later, uh, yeah, 25, or so, yeah. 25 years later, how has that changed other than these endowments have become ginormous? I mean, they, they are really spectacular in the footprint compared to where they were. And so I'm curious how that job and how uh, that has changed in addition to why do they need to be so large, you know, and, and why are they not going down in size? Like it, it's, it's a, some weird thing to me. And, and you see this when Harvard took some PPP money or whatever the stimulus money was. And people were like, why is this Harvard taking stimulus money? This is abhorrent. So, so talk about the size of them and then how they've changed. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with how they've changed. Um, a really part of the reason, probably a big part of the reason why I started the podcast was I was curious to answer that exact question. Um, because you know, we didn't talk about it. You know, I went from Yale to business school and then spent 14 years just focused in the hedge fund world. And so when I took a step back and said, you know, that was the first thing I wanted to know, like what has changed? Um, in some sense, not that much should change because again, we're talking about what happens over 10 or 20 years on pools of capital that should be around for many hundreds of years. Um, so from the structural perspective, there are subtle changes in asset allocation, Asset prices move. As you mentioned, there's just a ton more capital, not just the size of the endowments, but in the last 20 years, you have all these sovereign wealth funds mm. that you know are new. All the Australian yeah. super funds are brand new in the last 20 years. And the Australian super funds are based upon their retirement because they basically said, hey, we're going to take all of our retirement accounts. And that became a, a, a national thing. So these things became very big. Correct. In other very words, big, very fast. You're forced to put money into your retirement in Australia. That's like the big difference. Almost like Obamacare here, where you're forced to have your uh, health care. Yeah, in right. Australia, you're forced to actually put money into your retirement account, and then they manage it for you. So all of a sudden, that's explosive. Then Norway found a lot of oil. Saudi yeah. Arabia realized, uh, and all the countries, Qatar. Is it Qatar or Qatar? I hear people. Yeah, pronounce Qatar, it both yeah I'm not sure. Yeah, Qatar, the UAE. All of the, all of these places have just ginormous in you know uh, sovereign wealth funds that they have to figure out how to put it to work because they don't they they see the writing on the wall when it comes to oil yeah that's right yeah I mean it's everything right Japan's had their their GPIF their their uh, government pension fund which is a, a trillion and a half dollars which is fine it's been around for a long time but it used to be something like ninety five percent Japanese bonds and so uh. when they shift ten or twenty percent into global equities it has a you know has a meaningful a meaningful dent in the world. Ah, so um, what we're seeing is these large pools of capital are emerging because the world's getting bigger. There's more people. People are living longer, so retirement is an issue, so money's being pushed out there. Natural resources are changing. So you have this confluence of events. The people with the largest amount of natural resources, which have a value, need to diversify. The num population grows and ages, therefore, massive pools of retirement capital uh, emerged. And then for some reason, I guess the Harvards and uh, the Yales, et cetera, their alumni are so f um, successful, perhaps because of some of those other trends, that they then donate money back. And this, we have this flywheel here going that you've been investigating on Capital Allocators, your podcast. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly wow. right. So let me touch on the second question, which yeah. is, 
You know, something that, uh, that I think I and most people over the last quarter century didn't think was a serious question, and it probably is becoming one now. Um, the way that an endowment works is a little bit different from how most people think. So, you know, we think of it from the outside as Yale has $30 billion and they can just spend it. Um, mm. But if you look at where the money came from, uh, you know, as you mentioned, actually, most of it's come from donations and returns of the investments on those donations. And most of those donations have been given with a specific purpose. So it looks You're earmarked. More, yeah, it looks more like a mutual fund with lots of different shareholders, many of whom have already told you where you can spend the money. So as a starting point, it's not the case. There's just this big pile of money they can go spend. That said, there is a bunch of discretionary money, and it's grown and grown and grown. Um, any of these organizations, like any business, they grow over time. And they're, you know, when I worked at Yale, the endowment went from two and a half to $6 billion. So it was a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Today, Yale spends north of a billion dollars a year from the endowment. Wow. So literally when you started, the, the throw-off, yeah, so the throw-off is ha about half of what, or a third of 40% of the total endowment size is the throw-off today. Yes. Right. That and so is if, if they were spending a billion dollars in 1992, the endowment would have lasted two and a half years. Yeah. So crazy. that gives you the sense that, um, and by the way, they're spending a billion. If you want to go from spending a billion to spending a half billion, you're cutting half your budget. It's not mm. easy to do. We learned that in 2008. It's not easy to do. So um, the dollars are big. The institutions have grown. They've become stronger. It's another game of haves and have nots. That said, you have this unique period of time now with the pandemic. Mm. Um, all right so let's answer that when we get back it's how the pandemic is impacting all of this uh, and then i want to know how these capital allocators are compensated because if they were running hedge funds they're compensated massively and it's the same skill set so why would somebody go work in an endowment and then how did they get compensated when there's some professor or the headmaster of the school or whoever's running whatever the harvard business school is going to get paid a lot less than the person running the endowment how does all that work when we get back on This Week in Startups. Masterworks is the first company to allow any type of investor, whether you're retail or accredited, to gain exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. I had the founder, Scott Lynn, on this program back in July, episode 1087. He's brilliant. I took a lot of notes. And uh, he spoke about democratizing art as an asset class and the booming alternative asset space. Now, you can trade individual shares in masterpieces by the all-time greats with Masterworks art trading platform, including pieces by Basquiat, Picasso, Warhol, all of these amazing artists you would never be able to afford. Well, maybe some listeners, but most listeners wouldn't be able to afford an entire Warhol or Picasso. Come on. These blue chips regularly sell for tens of millions of dollars, and they typically appreciate at 8% to 30% annually. So how does it all work? It's very simple. Masterworks buys a painting, and they sell shares to investors. When the painting sells, you receive a portion of the proceeds, or you can trade your shares in the platform, which is really cool. So the bottom line is you can diversify your portfolio by investing in an art asset class that is not correlated with the stock market. And there are 25,000 people on the wait list. But fear not, Twist listeners can skip and go right to the front of the line as it should be. Masterworks.io, use the promo code TWIST and you will skip their 25,000 person wait list. That's right, masterworks.io, use the promo code TWIST 
and you will skip the 25,000 person waitlist. You can see some important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. It is really cool, this platform. I think it's going to change everything. Watch episode 1087. He was a great guest. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Really excited to have Ted Sides here. He is, uh, I guess, a reformed capital allocator <laughs> who now is a podcaster. <laughs> uh, but his podcast is great. It's called Capital Allocators. And uh, you're writing a book now, too, about... Gosh, you've done over 300 episodes. Podcasting is amazing for learning, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I've- yeah, I'm writing a book. It's um we went back and forth for a while on the title. It won't be out till next year. The title ready for this is going to yeah. be called Capital Allocators. Very nicely done. <laughs> Very nicely done. So you workshop that. Took a little time. Took some wordsmithing. Got There's some a subtitle that going. clarifies it a little bit, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was it was a big endeavor. <laughs> I, I I just love podcasts because it's such a great excuse to just sit down with somebody for an hour and chew the fat and just you know try to work through things that you've been thinking about in your brain and that's where i find the best podcasts come from so when i mentioned at the top of the show you know preet bahar or sam harris or you know brady sinellis or yourself like you're all just trying to figure and understand the world better and it's so much better than journalism today which journalists are so ill-informed you know i was a journalist like you're you're trying to understand like five percent or ten percent of what's going on in the world when you're a journalist and it's really hard to do because you're not the subject but you were the subject you were the person people called for a quote and it's really amazing to see podcasting works best it's like when an expert you know does like this random act of journalism of interviewing yeah no, it's been uh, it, it's been really fun, and if anything, like I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of the conversations because they're only an hour long, and you know, you'd like to record and keep going and going, and you know, sometimes the conversations you have afterwards or the next week or end up being the meatier stuff. It is definitely people leave stuff in the dugout to have that same experience, and then do you have the experience where it's going really well, but you're like, Oh God, I've already taken 90 minutes of this person's time, 60 minutes of this person's time. I got to get off the call, <laughs> but you want to go that extra half hour, right? Well, the truth is when I, it, it's only when I cross into your world. So, I mean, that certainly uh, happened when I was interviewing Joe Lonsdale, right? He's just a yeah, busy, busy guy, guy, fascinating guy, but I felt like I was on his clock, but no, for the most part at this They'll point go. in time, you know, particularly the CIOs, um, if I don't know them already, they know the show, they're really excited and they're comfortable and they just, they take the time to do it. So it's, but that part of it's been great. Another big secret I think is you're not in, I'm not making this a, a session to beat up on journalists, but a lot of times journalists, if it, if it bleeds, it leads They're They're basically looking for somebody who tripped and they're like, Oh, this person's returns were off this year. Let's make that the cover story. You're not doing that. You're just saying, hey, let's talk about your process and what you're thinking about and let's tell your story. So you have a better chance of getting somebody to talk and open up than somebody who's actually coming at them, you know, with a, with a knife. Yeah, as yeah I could care less about what's happening right now. And, uh, you know, one of the nice things, which I'm sure you've experienced when when you do these podcasts, um, it's never really about you. Um, and after my first couple episodes, I, I wasn't working at the time i'd left my old partnership and i just didn't think i had anything to say so i figured out i might, I might as well just let them talk i mean i'm a middle child i like talking yeah me too uh, middle child <laughs> so you know it's it, it didn't initially come naturally but it was 
it was great and people love telling their story. And as long as you know or have a sense of what the right questions are to ask next, it it's really, really fun. And yeah, I, I say it's quite similar to the role I sat in with one huge difference um, that goes right to what you said, Jason, which is that it's not evaluative. Like I don't mm. have to leave the meeting and decide if I'm going to say yes or no. I can be positive and supportive of everybody and just let them tell the story they want to they want to tell. Yeah, it's it's so it's such a nice. Um, I you're you're weekly uh, or yeah. so. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's such a nice cadence too. I'm I'm now two times a week, sometimes three, and I find. If I don't do the podcast for a week when I'm on vacation, I get antsy. I'm like, I need yeah. to talk to somebody. And it's really <laughs> saved me during the pandemic because, you know, as somebody who's a high extrovert, which I get the sense you are too, you like to talk to people and engage. It really is a nice way to just sort of keep contact with interesting people. It's always a great excuse. How do these people get paid? And yeah. why do they pick running an endowment versus yeah. running a hedge fund, which is essentially the same skill? Or yes. they just want to do something and they're lazy or they want to do something they've already made their money. They want a cush job. They want the, is it more notary? Is it, is it more, um, what's the word? Are, are people who run these big endowments more famous than the hedge fund people? I don't get the sense they are. No, I mean, what's the let me start there? with my experience because it, yeah. it's, it's exactly the opposite of what you think. I, I graduated college in 1992 coming out of a recession. There Same. weren't that many. Same. Right? There weren't that many jobs. No, and, it sucked. And that was the job I got, right? I didn't. And one of the contentions I had with David Swenson when I decided to go to business school, he thought business school was worthless. And he <laughs> he is someone who deeply believes in mission. Mm. Um, it's never been about money. And he, you know, back then he wasn't even making a million bucks a year working at Yale. He had left a big Wall Street job. So there are some people, uh, you know, it's some weird word, elimusinary or, you know, some nonprofit that just deeply have that sense in them. And this is a, an intellectually fascinating way to go about doing it. Um, that said, uh, Andy Golden, who manages the Princeton Endowment and worked with me at Yale, he was five years out of business school working at Yale, got hired by Duke, and two years later was running Princeton's Endowment. And in each step of those two, they tripled what he was making. So these people get paid low millions of dollars a year, something yeah. like that. Two, yeah. three, four million bucks a year. Yeah, the bigger probably ones. Probably the average. Yeah, the bigger ones. Yeah. And that's all public knowledge because they have to very put it public. Very yeah. public. So they can make two, three, four million. But and they would be making 20, 30, 40 million if they were on Wall Street or in a hedge fund. If they were succeeding. So the, the skill set is different. It is different. Okay, explain to me different. what's the difference between being at a hedge fund or at, a, at an endowment. Yeah, so the vast majority, there, there's a lot of overlap, but the vast majority of the CIOs who are picking managers, um, they're not in the markets every day. Mm. And so the, the level of stress that you might, have um, the ability to just truly think and act long term and not have to do things on any moment uh, are it's just much more prevalent in that seat. Mm -hmm. um, hedge funds are total is just the opposite end of the spectrum, right? You're beholden to your returns all the time, yeah, but hourly. Yeah. Daily. I mean, and it so never you, ends. You couldn't. And even though you hear about like endowment returns every year because the Wall Street Journal will pick it up and report on it, when you talk to any of those people, they could care less about their one year return or three Got year it. return. It's a much it's a it's a much longer duration game. So that's that's one part of it. Um, you know, I, I think that in the early years, again, nobody really knew where these people came from, and now. 
it's a very intellectually fascinating job, right? You can have conversations with Bill Gurley. You can have conversations with Henry Kravis. You could have conversations with, uh, I was going to say Warren Buffett, but you know he's not managing money publicly. But you know, you name your favorite money manager in the world doing anything, and you can become a partner with them. Right. Um, and so the diversity of what you're exposed to, your ability to kind of stay in touch with what's going on in the world, it's just really an amazing, amazing job. And people thank you for it all the time. So, you know, so there's, you're there's a money reward for, to it that is immeasurable in that you're getting kids scholarships. Yeah. Uh, yeah or there's a huge it, psychic reward. Or you're, if you're the Ford Foundation or Memorial Sloan Kettering, you're literally solving for poverty, uh, some global disease, pandemic, whatever, or uh, cancer, right? Like it's yeah. pretty great to go to work every day. And yeah. <laughs> you, you're trying to make, build the endowment to cure cancer. It's pretty, that's pretty colossal. Exactly. Do they get, it's just a different. What what is their how are they judged by their they have investment committees from what I understand that are basically a subset of the boards of these yeah. institutions correct yeah so how are they judged are they judged every ten years five years it seems like it's got to be a long horizon yeah I mean so the compensation structure and the governance are two of the most screwed up things about this whole universe because. Ah. As you are a CIO of an endowment or foundation or a pension fund or whatever it is, and you go out and interview a venture capitalist, you are all over them for their alignment of interest, for how they're compensated, what their other activities are. And if you turned that, you, you turn that around the other way, um, what you'd find is that there are some compensation schemes that are tied to you know longer term three or five year returns they tend to be discretionary mm. if you're at a public pension fund you're paid like a government employee yeah um there's no incentive at all it's just it's terrible structure if you're managing a family office you're beholden to a family and we all know what families are like yeah they're just fighting over like whatever asset whatever is, is there <laughs> um, there's some screwed up kid who's blowing their money and asking for more they want to do a movie yeah. Some and then you have so, yeah. some some of the practices are fine, right? There's yeah. there's salary bonus, sometimes there's incentive comp that's tied to long-term performance. Some are horrible. So mm. one of the common ones that that is is I think is the most pernicious is you'll have peer comparisons. So you'll have someone who's the the head of an endowment or a foundation and part of their compensation is tied to eight the performance of eight, you know, comparable sized endowments or foundations. Wow. Um, and you know that why is that could pernicious? Make sense. Well, yeah. it, it can be pernicious. I'll give you my favorite example, which I wrote about uh, a little bit in the book. Um, I was looking at a I had an investment in an Asian distressed debt manager. This goes back ten plus years, and they had just um, they had just gotten their first endowment as a client. And so I was asking them about side letters and you know what what special deal did they ask for? And one of the things they asked for was that they would commit their money. On the condition that that fund never take money from these other seven institutions. Ah, uh, wow. Sharp elbowed. Wow. So they're like, I need to have this. I need to block other people from having this. And that's just lame. Yeah. Well, it's uh, entire. That, I mean, you could make a convoluted case that over the long term, they're competing for professors and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it was because that CIO was trying to, you know, thought they had something special some and wanted to juice their own personal compensation. So. I, that doesn't happen that often, but it's not a great. Every institution's a little bit different. Um, you know, the amount they're funding out of the endowment as a percentage of the budget is different, and it's it's not the right way uh, to create compensation schemes. 
All right, when we get back, I want to do some lightning rounds here. I want to know what the pandemic is doing to all this, what you think of SPACs, and then I want your counsel on how I should manage my relationships with these people, and I'll give you my uh, my uh, my problems and my personal experience making these uh, visits to various meccas with leaving the names out when we get back on This Week in Startups. There's a chill in the air, the leaves are changing colors, and maybe you're even putting on an extra couple of layers so you know what that means black friday is right around the corner my favorite and dell is giving twist listeners an exclusive black friday sneak peek with 40 percent off select products at launch.co slash dell launch.co slash dell there has never been a better time to upgrade your home office or refresh your data center especially with many people working from home for the foreseeable future let's face it and you know my all-time favorite Dell products, the ultra-sharp curve monitor. It's perfect for working from home and getting that great upgrade because people are working from home on tiny laptops. They're not getting as much done. You get one of these 38-inch, or if you want to go crazy like I do, have a 49-inch at home, you're going to get 30% more uh, work done. You want to have that big widescreen monitor. Now is the time to upgrade that home office or refresh your data center. Is your business 100% cloud? Well, what is your backup strategy? Have you considered moving to a hybrid cloud and owning your own data? Well, you should. Get these questions answered and more by signing up for a free IT consultation at launch.co slash Dell. Twist listeners again, 40% off select products from our friends at Dell for the Black Friday sneak peek deal. And sign up for that free IT consultation at launch.co slash Dell and find out the best solutions for you and your team. Go ahead and go to launch.co slash Dell. Thanks again to Dell for sponsoring This Week in Startups. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Ted Sides is here. He runs an amazing podcast called Capital Allocators and a book coming out in a year that I'd like you to stop right now. Is it on Amazon yet? Can they pre-order? Uh, soon, not yet. Soon, not all right, yet. whatever. Couple, in a month or, or two. So. Yeah, just do a search on Amazon. It's very important that you pre-order the book and you send one as a gift to a friend, or maybe you order two to give one to a friend, because we all know for book authors, they store up all those pre-orders and they pop off the first week. So if you get five, 10,000 of them, it's great. And since you have the podcast, as an author, they now pick books based on podcast audience. I don't yeah. know if you knew that. I follower account on that. Twitter. Yeah. Follower account on Twitter, number of emails on your email list, and then podcast listens if you have those things you can easily get a book deal you just have to learn how to write and have something to say um so what is the story with the pandemic in relation to capital allocation because one thing i've been trying to figure out you know i we were talking earlier about real estate and it's just so hard to figure out real estate because you have this like layer of like well i have to live somewhere and uh there's a commute involved typically so real estate is just very hard to understand uh but in the pandemic i was just talking to my friends today los angeles real estate's going up high-end real estate's going up it's a pandemic and the stock market's going up so are we in like some micro inflationary situation or is it just chaos out there what, what are capital allocators doing in the year of the pandemic yeah well there was a whole question of sort of how do you respond in a period of a crisis um mm -hmm. and i did a, a like almost like a mini series within my show of just reaching out to, to guests who had been on the show and saying hey you know what are you doing um 
And a lot of it was what you'd expect at the beginning, kind of just trying to orient with where people are working from and how they're communicating and what's happened in the portfolio, right? Because March was pretty nasty until everything bounced back. Um, and the big question they have now is a lot less about, well, what's happening in the economy? Because it's just these pools of capital are not set up to pivot that quickly on, on big questions like that. The big question is uh, this role, these, these CIOs, are really in a people evaluation seat. Hmm. And so at what point in time can they decide that they can go ahead and evolve their portfolios with people they haven't met face to face? Ah. Uh, and it's, you know, at first there's none. Uh, you hear a lot of, well, we re-upped with the, the last fund. So it's, you're definitely right now in the situation where the, where the people who've already had the capital will continue to get it. But it's mm. harder if you're going out and raising something new. Um, you have situations where you have called it, call them star launches, where someone was a, you know, a big name at another fund. And the CIO may be interested in that anyway, but also may want to show their committee, hey, we're still doing stuff. So you know, what a great way to do it than something that feels safe and maybe somebody they met once. Right. What you haven't seen yet is a real shift into these people saying, this is the new normal. Mm. And going forward, we are going to need to meet people for the first time, do all of our work and evaluate them without having met them. At the very, very beginning of that, and people still hoping uh, that, that that won't be the ultimate fate. Yeah, that is something you have to adjust to. And we, when I saw it coming, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, I immediately thought, you know what, I'm now 49 years old. And uh, I've been through how many of these bubbles bursting. This is the time because I have a chip stack that I am going to do it right. So I just moved massively into equities as the market crashed and that paid off. And uh, that was on a personal basis. I just dialed it all up to equities. Um, and, and so that worked out very well. But um, in my fund, I was like, everybody's scared. I'm going to invest more. And so I just said, our accelerator is now 100% vir um, virtual. Do twice as many. Let's increase our activity now. Because half the VCs I met with in early stage were like, I'm taking the rest of the year off. I'm just going to work on my portfolio yeah. company. I'm saving my drought powder. So what I did was I went all out to get more LPs. I met with more LPs on Zoom. And we're closing LPs and investments over Zoom in 30 minutes, 45 minutes. People like it better. That's great. Now, that what are those? Do those tend to be like high net worth individuals? High net worth individuals are yeah. more interested. So we have a syndicate called the Syndicate. We were the first yeah. syndicate on AngelList. So now we can pivot into the real reason for this podcast, which is for me to get free consulting from you on how I should run my business. <laughs> but we were the first syndicate on AngelList. The first deal we ever did was Calm.com. We put $378,000 in that one. It was a $5 million company. That's like a yeah. $60, $70 million position right now for us. It's our one of our biggest positions after Uber and Robinhood. Yep. It's actually bigger than Robinhood. Um, and then we left because we didn't want to share carry with them. We wanted to control our destiny. So now we have the syndicate.com with 5,500 angel investors, high net worth individuals. And so they are also LPing our funds. So we've done uh, basically three funds, 10, 10, and 40. And when I went out to do the $20 million fund, launch fund three, we had so many people um, say no from the big endowments because we're too small. They want to write a $50 million check. But then all the people in our syndicate were like, I'd love to write a fifty dollars to $250,000 check. And 
I've never actually done a venture fund. How does that work? And boom, we just doubled our target immediately. So it's been it's it's been pretty great. So I guess the question I have though is um with these funds you mentioned uh before that they were sticking with the relationships they have. This is the thing I hear over and over again from these endowments who have been, you know, I get incoming from them, they ping me. And they come out to see the free pandemic, they would come out and see me and have lunch and spend three hours and want to meet the companies and want to see our returns. I mean, I've been in relationships with them for two years now, three years, in some cases where I've met with them four or five times, they've never become an LP. Yep. So what is the story with how they evaluate venture funds? And let's face it, I'm a new manager, I've been doing it for 10 years, the first five were like, part time and then last five full time. <laughs> how do they evaluate new managers? And you mentioned this relationship. And then conversely, how do they kick managers out? Because that seems like a very delicate thing as well. Yeah. Well, in the first part, um, you're doing it. You are in the process. I know you feel like this thing's gone on way too long for rationality, particularly in a world where you're you know, pumping out so many different deals every year. Um, but this is what they do. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not in a rush. They have a full portfolio. And they want to pay attention and get to know you and see what you're doing because if they do decide to invest, they're not intending to invest for fund three. They're intending to invest for fund three, four, five, six, and seven. Got it. Um, so they're going to take their time. Um, and that's, you know, the fact that they're still willing to come talk to you means that, hey, they're, they're interested in continuing to have a dialogue. Um, the frustrating part of that from your perspective probably shouldn't be that. It's that the duration of the tenure of the people in those particular seats isn't necessarily you know, 10, 20 years long. Right. So it's they'll spend those five, couple right? of years. Yeah, I mean, it changes, right? There's been a lot of CIO turnover in the last couple of years. I have um, had that where people were at one endowment and then they ping me and they're in another one. Like, oh, by the way, I'm no longer here, but I'm here. So, hey, I wanted to just touch base with you. And I'm just like, wow, this, this is a really slow process. But I guess the idea is if you're, because I've got like a 15 endowment list of like the top ones. I've met with all of them multiple times times now but I, I guess if one or two of those do pop off they're going to stick with me for funds four five six and seven like you're saying yeah how does a fund get kicked out of an endowment does that ever happen because you know when i went on the road a lot of the discussion and when i met with folks and i did it for the last two funds um they'd be like oh you know i know you know bill Gurley. oh i know you know chamath uh oh i know you're you know we're sequoia i was the first sequoia scout as well and, oh well i know you know sequoia and they're like, yeah, we don't have an allocation in those. And we don't have an allocation in Founders Fund or Sequoia. I was like, oh, well, I'm an LP in those funds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm friends with the people over there. So no conflict, no interest. It was almost like they were asking me to get into Bill Gurley's fund. <laughs> and I was like, what is this about? But how do they, does that happen often that a fund manager that they've committed to for four funds gets kicked out? And then how does that work? Yeah. So it's different in the private markets and the public markets. Okay. Um, but in the private markets, it can. Um, and, you know, the question is why? And, and usually you could think about it like any other investment where there's some thesis going in, mm. um, usually explicit, right? There's people with all that time, they do a lot of work. They write a memo, a, a big extensive memo that'll go to that investment committee to get approved. So they've thought carefully about why they're investing in something. Um, and usually it's change, right? So, for example, partners split. Mm. Um, you can track at some point in time. You can track which deals went to which partners. It's not that hard when you're an LP. Um, growth can be a big one. 
So, you know, you're all excited. You got this $40 million fund. You want these guys. Well, you know, part of the reason benchmark is benchmark is they've just never grown past $500 million funds, or I think that's the right number. Yeah. Um, and you look at a Sequoia or an Andreessen and Sequoia, they've, they've continued to do well, but they're huge or, you know, $10 billion organizations. Um, so, you know, Sequoia's had somewhat of a, a of a magic, uh, pixie dust over, over all these people. And you don't see almost anybody leaving Sequoia. Um, but you do. If you're leaving see- Sequoia, it's because you were not invited to come back. Right. I mean, the, uh, the GPs there, the partners, but you're talking about the LPs. The LPs never the leave LPs. because yeah. the fear for them if, is if they leave, uh, there was famously one person who left a benchmark fund. And actually, I think Yale got into it with Sequoia at some point famously because they didn't want to do, Swenson didn't want to do China. Do you remember that story? And I then wasn't there that- then, but yeah, I, I remember hearing about it. Yeah. And so that was, that's a, a cause of friction is that the number of funds Andreessen's doing and that's a that's basically a new firm. They've only been around for yeah. about twelve years, yeah. and they've been an underperforming fund according to some of the leaked documents. Um, so there, are, you got someone like Andreessen Horowitz, who's got famous founders, high profile, not great returns, but they keep adding funds. Like they've done, I don't, it's fifteen funds or something in ten years. Yep. it's bonkers. So how do LPs look at them? Do they look at them and go, "Oh, if I don't do this Andreessen fund"? Then Mark and Ben are going to take a person. They're not going to invite me to the next one. So they're they're almost kind of like gun to the head. Don't lose your spot. You have to do this next fund. Probably not with Andreessen. I, mean, I think it's case by case. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you sort of hit on all the key criteria, right? Ultimately, it's about performance. And if someone, uh, if one of these firms has gone out and and you could look at a a Greylock or a Sutter Hill, you know, certain venture firms that have done exactly what they said they were going to do grown with discipline for a long, long time, you never see those LPs turn over. Mm. Now, where you see the LPs turn over are when there's growth beyond what the LP perceives as the sweet spot for that strategy. So, you know, like Jason, okay, you're doing this really early stage, spreading on a lot of different deals. Can you do that with a billion dollar fund? I don't know. No. Right. So if all of a sudden... You had a loyal group of LPs when you were doing it, and let's say you grew it to a two hundred million dollar fund, and it was still working, and the demand was there because you had a couple home runs in that fund, and you wanted to raise eight hundred million dollars. Well, other people might step up and do that, but but the the ones who were there early and are disciplined wouldn't. Um, what's the what's the percentage venture should be in these endowments? What did they think? Because when I visited them pre Uber going public like two years ago, or maybe 18 months ago, when I visited that all of these endowments for the last time, they were like, we are so they, they had like two things that were very I asked them, like, how's your business going? Like, uh, how do you and you know, the sort of some of the questions I'm asking you. So I did a little interview with them. And uh, they were all like, we have 25% venture exposure now. Because some of these things like Airbnb and Uber that had gotten so big, that they just had an over allocation. They really, I said, well, what do you want to be at? And they were like, well, traditionally it's five to 10% venture. And now we're 25% venture. I was like, well, why don't you just, since, you can, since you're liquid on those investments as a secondary market, why don't you put yourselves, why don't you put that into your public market since they're liquid and they're kind of like big private, but they're liquid private. You could sell your shares to Mashiachi or whatever. And like, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. <laughs> but what's the proper percentage in their minds today? Yeah. Well, there's a pretty wide range. Uh, to, just to give you a sense, I think the the less sophisticated, so let's call less sophisticated 
uh, an office that's really only been around, you know, 10 years, mm-hmm. maybe a pension fund that has a, a governance board that aren't filled with investment people, you see zero to five. Mm-hmm. Um, in most of the endowment world, you see 10 to 20. Uh, but let me give you one example that's at the other end of the extreme, at the other, uh, the other extreme. There's a foundation uh, in Pittsburgh that um, has something like 90% of their capital in private markets, 30% in China, and they're probably 40 or 50% in venture because they've Whoa. figured out that they don't have the liquidity needs of these other institutions. It was set up in such a way that they pass on the capital to other institutions that have smooth spending rules. and they they're just there to grow the the base and get higher returns. So wow. a lot of it has to start with what is that pool of capital serving and you know what is the duration of that pool of capital and the liquidity needs and then you work backwards from there. Uh we've seen SPACs my 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 bestie Chamath one uh, one of my good friends uh, pre us both being investors we both worked he worked at AOL I'd sold the company at AOL so we met each other in the revolving door on the way in and out of AOL um he's doing these SPACs he brought SPACs yeah. back and now everybody's doing a SPAC I heard SoftBank's going to do a SPAC so it's a kind of a two-part question what's the impact of go people going public earlier after we just had Masayoshi-san taking people public privately with his fund it's two really weird events that nobody <laughs> anticipated I'm curious what you think of each yeah. Um, well, you've had, let's, let's just start with the fact that you've had this massive shift from you know, private, public markets to private markets, this number of companies, mostly small companies. Um, that probably follows the ultimate, like these end owners of capital being interested in the private markets, so private equity funds can raise more money. So you, so you have that situation, and the question is, where does it go from here? Um, SPACs are fascinating you know, fascinating trajectory where they were so bastardized, you know, call it five, 10 years ago, because it was just a bunch of crappy companies with chop shop investment banks, you know, taking them out um, with structures that were pretty usurious for the sellers to now a lot more mainstream um, and probably will serve an important role in a lot of these later stage, particularly, you know, technology venture back companies going public. Um, there's also an interesting dynamic it uh, that, that has to do with interest rates because if you're a hedge fund, for example, um, and you can borrow extremely cheaply, why not fund a SPAC where worst case scenario, you're probably getting your cash back and best case scenario, the sponsor goes and buys a good company and you have this great upside. So mm. it's a pretty asymmetric risk reward if you have capital that you can leverage against. And so there's really a huge demand uh, to invest in these vehicles, which is great. I actually just agreed to go on the board of my first spec. So even someone like me who's on the outside of this stuff got a call about that. And I said, you know, I can't imagine a project that is more asymmetric than being on the board of a spec. Um, It's terrific. Yeah. There's literally, all you have to, there's no downside. No. And if you find something, I mean, the only downside is time. Yeah, but I not guess. on the board. I'm not, not the on the board. It's not like it's a ton of time. You're not I, like I operating. Think I know a how to. I know how to say yes. <laughs> and yeah, so you know, there, there's fascinating. It's set up. You know, the question I've always had about SPACs, which I don't fully understand because I haven't gone through one. As part of the reason why I'm doing this is that there's dilution. Mm. There has to be dilution, right? Because the sponsor of the SPAC is taking some percentage of the ongoing company. Now, whether it was 20 or it gets negotiated down 10 or 15, it's fine. Um, this, in theory, is, you know, Wall Street takes 6%, and so you're avoiding Wall Street. Well, maybe, but 
it's a fascinating the risk rewards across the board are really interesting and it's the hardest one for me to see is sort of how does the seller sell the business when they're giving away you know you're paying it there's a purchase price but then there's this chunk of the business that's going into the sponsor's pocket and in warrants and and direct equity yeah and it doesn't feel too onerous because if it's a 400 million dollar spac going into a 4 billion dollar company or a 2 billion dollar company like it's all going to work out in the end yeah, it that's feels right. like they're get, they're not getting twenty percent of the entire company. They're getting twenty percent of the that's money right. they put in. So they're getting twenty percent right. of four hundred million. It's eighty million. And if the company was worth forty four billion, in that case, they're getting five percent. So five percent. It's actually not inconsequential. It's not inconsequential. It's yeah. You know, I guess it avoids. I guess a six percent underwriting fee. But the question is, if you're an investment bank and you're going to get crushed by these, why do you keep charging six percent? Why don't you charge four? Yeah. It's definitely going to have a rippling effect through the industry. What, the thing that I think is particularly interesting about it is we've had this like really horrible advice out here, uh, stay private longer. And in fact, my top investment to date um, was Uber and it was the poster child for staying private too long until Airbnb decided, hold my beer, we'll stay, we'll stay private for another two years or something at risk at all when the pandemic hits. What what are the how do these uh, capital allocators who own large swaths of like an Airbnb, how do they deal with this staying private so long and not being able to cash in their chips? Are they selling on the on the secondary market? Or I heard that some of them in Uber might have been like collaring their stock and just like giving the upside, you know, to you know some bank or something. How, yeah. how do well, they deal? It's with not it? the first time it happened, right? So when I was leaving, I left Yale to go to business school in 1997, and you know the Snapple buyout had just hit, and Netscape had just gone public. So circle back to Mark Andreessen, um, and Yale had a venture portfolio through you know those couple of years heading into 2000, where the publicly listed shares were larger than the largest positions of the largest stocks held by the the public stock managers that Yale had hired. Wow. So, you know, that time around, Yale hedged it. Um, and they hedged it too early. And I think at one point in time, it was a billion dollar short portfolio back when the endowment was, you know, $5 billion or $6 billion. So they left a billion on the table. They look like idiots until... Until it all fell over. And they, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like uh, over four or five years of running this short book that had grown to, you know, really significant size, Yale made something like $100,000. <laughs> But yeah. it smoothed out the returns, right? So if you yeah. looked at kind of Yale's performance in that one particular year, which for them, it's a fiscal year, is probably that July 2000 to, to, to June 2001, they were up 10% when everybody else was flat. And the year before, they were up 40, and that looked good, but they probably would have been up 50. So it was a hedging mechanism, and it also allowed them to reduce that exposure. I don't know exactly what people are doing today. Um Mm. I think it's a lot harder when the companies are still in private hands. Yeah. Um, and the question is, you know, do you want to hedge with a comparable basket or do you just want to let it ride and understand that, you know, sometimes the venture firms don't mark them up all mm. that much. And so, you know, there's potential upside, there's there's some downside. But think about Tesla. I mean, people sold when it went public and it was $14 a share, it went up to 30 or 40 and they sold and then it's gone on the tear of all tears. I mean, they went from a $20 billion company to... Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is now. Yeah. Have a you have a lot of, I mean, you have a lot of those dynamics across markets when ownership changes hands. Right. So, so if you own that Tesla stock in the public markets, but your investment was to make the money 
as a venture capitalist in the private markets, well, you've got your public stock managers then could look at Tesla and you know maybe you were lucky and you had Kathy Wood or Ron Barron and they wrote it all the way up, but a lot of them said, you know, okay, that's not, you know, now you're in a, a larger universe of potential opportunities. Yeah, that's one of the things I've been looking at is um, as an early stage investor, when do we trim our positions? And the closest I can come to is, you know, when you're investing at a five million dollar average entry price for the valuation of the company maybe when it hits 250 and a billion it's a good time to just cash out 10 percent, let's say um and then maybe when it hits five or ten billion it's time to you know something about cashing out 20 yeah. percent or something but you know it's very weird because the spac thing has happened now there's a half dozen portfolio companies we have whether it's com wealthfront Robinhood, data stacks thumbtack all and desktop metal previously, which then got spacked or is in the process of sp- yeah. spacking. Uh, <laughs> uh, this this is going to shorten the return window for me from, you know, 10, 11 years back down to six or seven, which could be dramatic for our industry. Yeah. I mean, it could be a great thing, right? The question yeah. is at what price, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I do think that the public markets, generally speaking, not not in all sectors, certainly not true in biotech, but the public markets, generally speaking, are not that receptive to cash flow negative businesses. No, yeah, they, they spanked uh, Uber until Uber was like, you know what, we'll give you what you want. We'll lay yeah. people off. You, you guys want to see us hit profitability? Fine. F it, we'll do it. I mean, and it was just like, I was like, wow, that's what got us here is not what's going to get us there kind of situation. Like what got us to being uber was being bold and audacious and and just break even or lose money just let's get as many credit cards and as many people addicted to the service as possible can we get 100 million people to use this can we get 200 million 300 million just basically what bezos did at amazon and now the i don't understand the public markets why they don't understand this playbook very well i mean it's it's such an obvious playbook but i guess they've been burned before or something yeah, I mean, I, well, the question is to what end, right? I, I, the playbook has worked from nothing to something substantive. Yeah. And the question is, like, what are the unit economics? Does it work? Yeah. And if it doesn't work, the public markets don't want to fund it ad infinitum. So it's not that surprising. Um, mm. back, in the, you know, back in the days when I worked at Yale, you just didn't see this kind of thing, right? Venture capital would fund the business until it was its own self-sustaining business and the last round of capital to get there was in the public markets and that you know that yeah. was it so it's a little bit of a different you're right i mean it's a, it's a different world the 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 power of what's happened in in all of technology and the ability to grow quickly and scale is kind of unprecedented and yeah it's possible the public markets just don't quite embrace that yet in the Uber one, I was just like, hey, guys, just take the losses and divide it by the number of rides, and you'll see it's like 50 cents being lost on every ride. Do you think if you raise the price of every ride on average 50 cents that it would change user behavior in any meaningful way? It's like, no, it's not going to change it. But I guess people don't buy it. Uh, and I think that's the big lesson for – I think that's – this is what I've been telling people the new playbook is. In the private markets, VCs just want to see top-line growth and understand that there is some sort of plan that – you know, we could eventually boil the frog, raise the prices, and people are not going to go away. In the same way, Netflix, you know, got up to whatever, $12 or $13 a subscriber from, you know, $8, $9 a subscriber. Yep. And eventually, you can, you can add that. Or I, I don't know if you know about Amazon Prime, but you, you've been on Prime for over a decade, I assume. A long time. Yeah. Do you know what you first paid for it? 
Do you remember? No idea. It's 50 bucks. There was like 40, 50, 60 dollar stuff. Do you know what you're paying now? No. <laughs> it's like 150, 200. Yeah, I was, was going to say 90. So you're proving my point. Yeah. But, that, like, but you're yeah, but the perfect not... example. You don't even know what you're paying. That's and, right. That you that's boil right. the frog real easy if the product is good. <laughs> yeah. If the uh, product's good. No, that's right. Now, the question is like, you can go into it with Uber, which is if Uber tries to extract that 50 cents, what does Lyft do? Yeah, well, you know, that was the game of chicken that we all saw. And you don't want to speak about sharp elbows. If there was the word on the street was you invest in Lyft, you'll never own a share of Uber. Like not even yeah. in secondary. Yeah. You're gonna get blocked. Like you're you're you you picked the wrong family to be part of. This family's got yeah. bigger guns, you know. And so Lyft just has no doesn't have the war chest of cash that they're gonna, you know, and they didn't have the redundant business to weather yeah. this storm right so i think they're going to get a be takeout candidate what's your take on the public markets it's very hard for me to understand what's going on i was on cnbc the other day and say they were like give us your best top five buys i was like my top five buys are so overpriced right now i wouldn't buy them yeah. uh but i will tell you you know peloton tesla you know and slack to me look like the future uh these will be big and zoom these look like companies that will be here in 10 years with better products and they're very sticky. And once you're on Peloton, once you're on Slack, once you own a Tesla, and you know, you just you're not giving that experience up. Um, or Zoom, like in, there's very f small chance that some products that come and displace those in my yeah. mind. But they seem super overvalued. So why is the market so overvalued right now? And then what happens from here with all this money being printed? I, I know yeah. I'm asking you to answer the hardest question in the world right now but you must be thinking about this and what do your yeah. guests say and what are they think because you talk to the smartest capital allocators yeah look most of them don't pay much attention to it um hmm. the overheated market yeah I, I mean i think they only try to be sensitive to it at the extremes okay um and the question is are we at an extreme and we might be um so we it's might pretty be extreme to me and then the yeah. question is what do you what do you do about it what do right? you do so You've seen from that community more and more investment in private markets. And if you looked back five or 10 years to where we are today, it's night and day. Um, and, you know, but venture is one thing. You look at the private equity, the leverage buyout markets, and multiples that people are paying for these deals are up 10, 11, 12 times EBITDA. Wow. Um, it's a totally different game. Now, if you go back to first principles and you're, Every business at the end of the day is a you know worth a, a discounted value of the cash flows and your interest rates are zero. Well, you know the businesses are worth a lot more. So the question is, what happens when rates go up or if rates go up, um, mm. and what does that do to the discounting mechanism? So you know I don't have the answers. I think that what the markets are clear and COVID just accelerated this. What the markets are clearly telling you is that the kinds of businesses you're talking about, the technology growth oriented business that have a clear runway. Uh, everybody recognizes that. Mm. Um, so sometimes what makes for a great business doesn't make for a great investment because of because of the price. Yeah, that's uh, what I've been trying to explain. I teach a course, angel.university, where I've been teaching angel investors every month. 300 people, 400 people come every month, accredited investors. And I'm like, entry price matters. <laughs> and I tell them like, listen, here's a here's a matrix of traction of the company and the and the um the market cap, essentially, the valuation. And you want to see as much traction as possible in the lowest possible uh, market cap because that's your entry price. And they're like, well, why not pay three times as much? And I'm like, and they're like, it doesn't matter if it's a unicorn, you still get a great return. I'm like, yeah, but you need to have 
you can get three shots on goal. If you can find three comparable companies at a lower price, you get three shots on goal. And really hitting a unicorn is about shots on goal. Can you get to 25 or 30? I, I hit one unicorn every 30 investments or so to date. Um, that most people are not going to have access to the deal flow that will cause that or this time period. But man, you need to hit, get to more shots on goal rather than, yeah, paying yeah. these crazy high prices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, like public markets, you're not really trying to get the types of returns, right? It's not as, it's not as buying, it's not, it's not, it's more of a batting average game than a slugging percentage game. Yeah. Yeah. And then the business I'm in is slugging percentage. For sure. Um, wh what do you think of the anti capitalism, uh, pro socialist, you know, kind of leaning towards Bernie Sanders. Maybe it's actually communism, kind of ban the billionaires sentiment we see in, you know, what is a small group of people, but a, a growing group of people in America and the impact that has on the world yeah. and, and returns in the future. Yeah. I mean, the places where it's most pronounced and is having a dialogue are in the kind of the whole sustainability ESG world. Yes. And then somewhat, you know, increasingly in kind of called diversity and inclusion. Um, I've seen that trend change dramatically in the last two years in the sense that for most of the CIOs, they view their remit as having the widest breadth of potential opportunities and anything that narrows the investable opportunity set is going to be bad for returns, including, you know, investing in oil. Um, that's clearly shifted, right? In, in the last- That has shifted. Yes, it has. Um, yeah. Probably accelerated by Greta Thunberg starting last year. You saw it in Davos, you go into COVID. And so um, that, be that is at the forefront of people's minds. Um, and it's really the E- the G part of governance that's like always been part people you know think of proper governance. So going into COVID, it was really this question of what, what's going to happen relative to the environment, and then depending on what happens in the presidential election in the U.S., that'll you know clearly accelerate mm. if if you have a left leaning government president. Um, the social part that accelerated during COVID with Black Lives Matter is trickier. And I've, in both of these, I've done like a little mini series within the podcast, just, just as you said, just try to learn what this is all about and how people are participating in it. Um, the diversity question in asset management, um, I have my own views on it now. And, and again, this is really focused on asset management, more the economy. It's a little bit of a step down in terms of the, the pyramid and the ecosystem. Um, it's a it's a real problem, and it's a problem from, I would say, unintended biases. Not so much. There, there's always the you know George Floyd's of the world, but you don't see it that much um, mm. in asset management. It's more there've been just a long history of self interest driving, you know, sales. So we need the salesman. Well, you know, tribal affinity. We want the person to selling them to look sound and have the same yep. background as the person buying. So, you know, if those people are white, then these people are white. And if those people are men, then these people are men. So those are the kinds of unintended biases and people are very focused on it right now. Um, but most of asset management, and we've even talked about this in the venture space is increasingly concentrated in the hands of the winners. Mm. So it really doesn't matter if you say, okay, we're going to go invest in a bunch of, new minority-owned hedge funds because mm. no one in the allocator community really cares about the next hedge fund. They already have their hedge fund investments. 
So what has to happen is what we were talking about earlier, which is they're looking to do a five fund. I mean, my arc is, you know, whatever, three years of primary investing and per fund. Their arc is, oh, let's find uh, our next uh, manager for the next five funds, three years of, you know, we're talking about a 10, 20 year outlook they're taking. They're taking a 20 year outlook. They do. And so the question is, if you want more diversity in the venture capital space, how are you going to get it? Well, mm. you might need those people to be trained at Sequoia first, because mm. those are the ones that the allocator community is going to embrace when they're ready to go off on their own. So it's really Sequoia who needs to have a diversity program, not so much the CIO said, okay, we're going to go invest. You're seeing both of it. You're seeing this kind of emerging manager allocation. Um, but it's And that, that dynamic takes a decade or two to play out if, in fact, people agree that it's a problem. Um, so right now, people are very focused on it. That focus and interest is going to have to sustain itself for a long time to make any real progress. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that historically back colleges have had limited access as LPs in venture capital is one story I read. So that's something that needs to change as well. Uh, but we've started to see, uh, yeah, and so it looks like Sequoia and Greylock and other folks are... Definitely starting to work with the HBCUs uh, of the world. Um, but there is this problem of, yeah, new fund managers. I, it's pretty crazy. I'm seeing so many new fund managers, and it really is diverse. But there's this micro funds, which fly under the radar. They are done by high net worth individuals. So I, the thing that gives me a lot of hope is I'm seeing, you know, I got into the game pretty early. Um, as an angel investor, you know, my late 30s, but uh, I'm seeing 29 year olds start venture funds on the regular out here. Now they're $4 million funds or $5 million funds. These are micro funds, but you know, all you need to do is hit one head uh, and all of a sudden you're taken seriously. So I think it's going to change radically, <laughs> radically. Um, but the environmental stuff is that, are you cynical? Or do you think it's a, are you, Oh, you think it's window dressing or whatever they call that green uh, astroturfing yeah, in terms green, of the greenwashing, yeah. greenwashing, astroturfing, whatever, it, you know, is, is that what's happening here? Or is it actually you have people who are at these funds who are Gen Xers or younger who are like, you know what, this actually matters and we need to get out of oil and we need to get into solar and wind and sustainability. So there's, I'd address that in two ways. You know, one is I do think it's real or more real this time. Uh, it's yeah. what Josh Wolf at Lux calls a directional arrow of progress. Mm-hmm. Right? This is sort of, it almost doesn't matter what you or I think about the environment or whether it's real or not, or, you know, Trump says it's not, and it doesn't matter. Um, the people, th- this next generation cares. So right. it will happen. Um, yeah. Which is great. I mean, that's something to be super yeah. positive about. Boomers. You know, they might say they care, but their actions are not of people who care. That's right. And then Gen Xers, it feels like we care a lot, but it's not necessarily the top of our priority list. Returns would be, we would look at it equal, I think. Yeah. But this next generation millennials, they would put the environment and social justice and diversity inclusion above returns. Correct. And then the question is, so that's the one side is from a business perspective, this will definitely accelerate. The question is... The latter, which is what does it do to returns and what's priced in? Mm. 
So you can look, the easiest way to look is in the public markets and you can say every ESG fund with a track record looks good because oil's underperformed. Well, has oil underperformed because of the movement in ESG? Or is the movement of ESG accelerating because oil is underperformed? And so now the funds, you know, people like having the mission, but they also say we don't have to sacrifice anything. So, um, yeah, that's hard to, yeah, because it it also is consumers are embracing this in a way that people did not anticipate. If you look at impossible foods and the the mock meat stuff, I passed on all those investments because I looked at it, I was like, when is this going to be cheaper than meat? And they're like, that's not the point, Jake Al. Like, People will pay a premium. Like I was like, bullshit. People are going to pay a premium for a hamburger that doesn't taste as good as a hamburger. Like that makes no logical sense. Yet here we are. People will pay fifteen dollars for an Impossible Burger when they could get a Shake Shack for eight dollars. That's infinitely better tasting. Yeah, you can buy two Shake Shacks for that price of an Impossible Burger. And but here we are. And then you look at like Tesla. Like people will spend a hundred thousand on a Model X. or you know, sixty thousand on a Model Three slash Y, and they could easily get a Prius for thirty or something, but they right. still want a hundred percent electric. They're actually voting massively with their dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll say, I think I, I that's think a that's big that's... part of the the leading of it is that consumers are actually embracing this in a way that is, yeah, shocking yeah. to me. Yeah, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I I think that that I think that's right. Um, and that will continue certainly in that area and that the whole ESG area, um, what'll get funky by the way, is when capital rushes into this is the definitions of ESG. So what does that mean? So if, are you saying if people make too much money in this, then it's going to hurt the cause? Like it's almost like if this becomes profitable. So I've gotten a great window on this from a terrific macro strategist guy named James Aitken, who, who advises some of the, you know, the biggest pools of capital in the world um and he said the government is trying to work uh cybersecurity and national defense into the definition of esg what that's the that's the military industrial complex just trying to tailgate yeah that's not cool well the point is if an index gets created and mm. it includes certain companies and not others and and this is a, uh. a, a you know it's etfs and everything else where's the capital going to go yeah. And so the definition of what those indexes are matters. Right. If you put security into the national security into that makes no sense. Like we're, we're talking about the planet here that we're not people Maybe that's good good national governance. I don't know. That's what they're going to that's what they're going to argue, right? It's so funny before we got on this podcast, I was literally tweeting like Apple just spent like 5 minutes in their iPhone 12 presentation, I kid you not, talking about the virtues. They had a woman standing on the top of the mothership building surrounded in you know evergreens and trees in california northern california you know vistas and solar paddles and she's like and our the box of the iphone is half the size and it doesn't include wasteful charger and a wasteful pair of headphones because there are already two billion of those in the world so we don't need to create more of those and i was like i think you just told us that it's twelve hundred dollars and you don't get headphones (laughs) <laughs> is that what you just said sounds that way <laughs> and, then we're, and then you have to go buy a charger for 40 dollars separately like literally did they change the plug this time too no they're keeping the lightning plug just so that you can buy usb c's for your tablet your ipad pro and your laptop your Air, microsoft you know your your macbook has to use a usb c and you still have to carry lightning with you but it was it was really i thought that was like a special moment for them to 
get an extra $100 or $50 in margin per phone while passing it off as you really are going to enjoy this. Uh, and <laughs> Apple's going to be carbon neutral, like across everything by 2030. If you look at the environment, the government is trailing technology. People hate tech companies now because yeah. they're so big. But the truth is tech companies are opting in and leading the way here without any, they're not being forced to do it. They're just taking it upon themselves as like marketing or they actually care. Yeah. Either way, it's a good thing. You think things should get, I'll, I'll wrap with this. You think the, is, you take either one of these, um, and this doesn't have to do with capital allocation necessarily, but it does have to do with the future. Um, our relationship with China and then breaking up big tech. Any thoughts on either of those? Those are two things I've been struggling with in doing themes on my podcast around. Yeah. Um, How do you I'm think about both those? I, I don't have any real uh, insight, but I'm happy to express an opinion. So Yeah. Yeah. Opinions that are strongly felt and yeah. yeah without much, I, I, so without I, much I, depth of yeah, first no, no knowledge. Depth perfect. Of, I'll just throw it out there. <laughs> That's uh, what I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, I, look, China, uh, tell me what's going to happen in the election and that'll let you know what's going to happen with China. I mean, we're, we are inextricably linked to each other. Yeah. And so. Which is I, a I good thing. The, yeah, look, I, I'm hard not to go a, to war with somebody who your entire economy is based on yeah. <laughs> in both cases. I'm not a particular, I'm not very political person, but I'm not a particular fan of Trump's style. Um, That's as terrible. Many yeah. aren't. Um, I mean, it's going to, it's going to basically, we're going to be the reason he loses is probably going to be style. Well, if he does lose, that'll certainly have a hand in it. Um, there's no doubt about feels that. like the, even his own the people who are his own supporters women and and folks who voted for him they're just like i can't take this craziness anymore i think yeah, you have to tell me why like because i don't follow it well enough but why the republicans didn't run a serious candidate against him in the primary is a whole nother question i guess you don't do that to an incumbent but you don't um, do it to an incumbent and i think they thought he was going to slide in again because the economy was so good and right. in the pandemic and so yeah, I that's think right. they, yeah so i got nothing for you really on china um I don't know enough to know what the tech breakup means. I do know enough to know that across industries, technology just being the most pronounced, we've had this, you know, 30 or 40 year increase in concentration and decrease in competition. That's, you know, pretty problematic. I had Jonathan Tepper on my show who wrote the book, The Myth of Capitalism, um, and went through all the research. And, and it's not just tech. So I do think there's going to be some change, um, whether that means breakup or just a slowdown in the ability uh, to acquire you know, tangential businesses. And maybe that forces these companies to just pay big dividends because they, they throw off so much cash. That I have no idea. Um, but I do think it's a problem. Uh, and, you know. What do you, you see that problem as? You think it's, it's impacting competition? Yeah. Yeah, that is the problem. I mean, you already mentioned it once, right? You can't really have situations where you say, okay, we're not going to, nobody can touch Uber's. You know, if you touch Uber's competitor, you can't participate in Uber. So yeah. take that to Amazon, yeah. any of these businesses. And you could, you know, my favorite new book is Morgan Housel's new book, The Psychology of Money. And he, you know, he talks one of, he talks about greed and he talks about both Bernie Madoff and Raj Gupta, who was the, the head of yeah. McKinsey who went down in insider trading. Using ex whom, he was using expert networks, right? <laughs> Uh, no, he was just direct into the Goldman boardroom. That's a separate. Oh. Um, I mean, it's you, so weird that Raj case is like, if you're printing money, why cheat on the incremental dollars? I feel like capitalism, I always tell this to young founders, like capitalism is already rigged in favor of 
like people who have a bias towards action, you don't need to cheat on the margins. It right, doesn't so, serve any so purpose. But this, so now let's get back to tech. Yeah. The question is, is Amazon doing that when they start promoting their own stuff and Google their own searches? And yeah. like, there are certain things, the platform is big enough and powerful enough that they shouldn't have to do that. Right, but um, they overreach. See, that's the thing. It's that incremental 5%. And that's the problem. That little bit of greed is so the problem. I think you've nailed it, which is they have, they're digging their own graves by just taking a little bit too much. If they had been generous to Yelp and let Yelp have the top listings instead of putting in their own stuff, or if they just gave a little chip to journalism, you know, to, to publications for licensing their content, so many little things that a Google or an Amazon could do to just yeah. keep it. The other thing that's interesting, though, is how does Slack, Peloton, and Tesla, and you know uh, Zoom, how do they win in those markets if these incumbents are so powerful because microsoft has thrown everything at um slack and zoom and google and cisco and microsoft has thrown everything at zoom can't beat them peloton yeah. should have been an apple product or a company maybe it yep. still will that would be a no-brainer purchase if apple actually had hootspah and would just buy companies they should have bought tesla at 70 billion and they should have they should buy peloton now but they're so not creative with their money you know, Amazon, you're going to circle all the way back to podcasts now. So Amazon's, uh, I'm sorry, Apple is, a, is an interesting story in that, you know this from the podcast world, since it all evolved out of the Apple ecosystem, yep. the company won't sell data. So we right. don't know who's listening. Yes. Which I consider like in some ways a feature <laughs> in addition to a bug, because yeah. I'm also like, I just don't want my listeners. What happens when you can get that data is eventually people resell it. That's where like, I think the privacy laws gdpr and ccc cc yeah. something p here in california like these laws are super important because these companies ccpa these companies will not pump the brakes on collecting data and then they eventually wind up selling it one way or the other they sell it and when i was running in gadget and before i sold it to aol and autoblog and all these things the ad networks would tag our users then they would go to samsung who we had as a primary advertiser and they'd say, would you want to buy Gizmodo, TechRadar, Slashdot, and Engadget? And they'd say, how do you do that? Well, we've tagged all the users, so we'll get them when they're on Drudge Report or New York Post. We could tell you the same users for $5 yeah. off-site. And I was like, oh, we, then we kicked them all off. All right, listen, I took you for over an hour, uh, <laughs> 80 minutes, wow. Um, Ted, it's, uh, it's just great to have met you, uh, and I think we should do this like every year or two. This is my other tip for you with your podcast. When you have a great guest, book them again. For 12 or 18 months, I started doing this. Like, so I got Keith Raboy or Chris Saka or Chamath or anybody who kind of crushes it. I'm like, Andy Ratcliffe is another one. Yep. I'm just like, book Andy. Every, I just said, book Andy Ratcliffe every year, the founder of, uh, I don't know if you've had him on the pod. I'm well he's front just, now. Yeah, we've, we've talked about it. You got to get Andy Ratcliffe on. You got, you've had Bill Gurley on or no? Yeah, Bill Gurley. No, I haven't no? had Bill on. No. You do, do you dip down into the VC space that yeah. often? Or? Yeah, sometimes. I've got, I had a whole bunch lined up that I was going to do right before COVID hit, and I, I yeah. don't know the people, so I'd rather do it face-to-face. -face. I've just kind of waited, and you know, we'll see. You know what? I, at this point, I think everybody's got a good Zoom setup now, and so yeah. I've gone 100% remote, and I ha have this like million-dollar studio in the city, and I don't use it anymore, so I'm thinking of deprecating <laughs> it and just staying home. <laughs> All right, listen, stay safe. Everybody go listen to Capital Allocators uh, and um, it's Capital Allocators podcast or you can just search for Capital Head, Capital Allocators. And when the book comes out, please buy it. Uh, Ted, Sides, 
great guest, great job. You can follow him on the Twitter, T-S-E-I-D-E-S. And maybe at some point, yeah, I, when I go out next time, I'm going to need your help because I, the other thing that they ding me for is I'm outspoken and that's a little problematic for them. So I literally had a meeting get canceled because one of them saw me on CNBC and I said, the president is a moron for saying that Apple, I'm sorry, I said, I said, the president, this is, the president is a moron for saying that Amazon doesn't collect sales tax. They, they're only five states where they don't collect sales tax, and those are the ones that don't have sales tax. The other ones, they've been collecting sales tax forever. This is like, he's like four years, this is moronic. This is when he was first in, and literally the endowment canceled the meeting because somebody on the investment board saw that they were meeting with me and said, fuck that guy. We're, no way we're backing his fund after he was anti-Trump. All right, Jason, let me leave you with this one little tip. Okay. No matter how big you get in this business, yeah. you're not going to have every LP in you're your not? fund. <laughs> so just find the ones that find that outspoken nature endearing. See, I think that's good. That's, see, that's probably the best wisdom because that's the same wisdom I give to you know, up-and-coming angel investors and people who are new fund managers. I'm like, you only need one win. That's it. You are defined by your winners in terms of, you know, your returns. And then your reputation is defined by the people you pass on investing in. Which is like, when you think about it, like the reputation of one of these endowments who says no to me, like their reputation of all the they say no to 99 out of 100 funds or 299 out of 300. So your reputation quickly becomes what do the people who you said no to think about you? Yeah. <laughs> in, in addition <laughs> to what the people you said yes to. All right, listen, Ted, you're a great guest. Great podcast. I really do. Podcaster to podcaster. I really enjoy your podcast and your style and the guests. I really appreciate you having it in the world because it provides value. Thanks, Jason. Um, and it's been great to get to know you. Uh, hopefully we'll meet at some point in the real world when the pandemic ends. Look forward all to right. it. We'll see you all next time on the Swing Stars. Bye-bye. <laughs>